All right, we are back. We promised to talk about uh, the passing of both Al Davis and Muammar Gaddafi. But I believe this is going to be one of those times where we're going to renege on our promise. These couple of remarkable rogues have been pretty well chronicled in the mainstream media, and I don't think we need to add to that, although I was looking forward to banging away at Al Davis. Maybe we'll save that one for our look back at the end of the year. Let's instead talk about something else we mentioned we would get back to a few weeks back. And, of course, we like to be men of our word. Let's take a few minutes and talk about the Adam Winkler article in The Atlantic on the secret history of guns. The article starts off talking about how one day, during the late 60s, when the governor in Sacramento was Ronald Reagan, the festivities near our Capitol building were interrupted by the arrival of 30 young black men and women carrying 357 Magnums, 12-gauge shotguns, and 45 caliber pistols. The 24 men and six women climbed our Capitol steps, and one man, Bobby Seale, began to read from a prepared statement. He announced that the American people in general, and black people in particular, should take careful notice of the racist California legislature, which was aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless. To make a point in favor of gun control, the 30 people then marched into the Capitol building with loaded weapons. Suffice it to say that at that time, no metal detectors stood in their way. The article goes on to talk about how our Second Amendment to the Constitution does have a certain ambiguity in it. We all know that. Even if you are the NRA and uh, managed to leave off the second clause of the amendment. But what I love about this story, which, which, which I did not know, was that back in 1967, guns became central to the Black Panthers' identity. And under the directorship of people like Huey Newton, recruits the Panthers learned how to clean, handle, and shoot guns. Their instructors in this were sympathetic black veterans recently home from Vietnam. Turned out Huey Newton had discovered during law classes at San Francisco Law School that uh, California law allowed people to carry guns in public so long as they were visible and not pointed at anyone in a threatening way. So in places like Oakland, various armed black revolutionaries strutted about, exercising their Second Amendment rights as they sought to keep and bear arms. This did not go over well with certain segments of the population who to listen to today would argue that the Second Amendment has no limits. When the Black Panthers began doing things like uh, tailing police patrols in their neighborhood, the legislature got involved. Apparently Don Mumford, a conservative Republican state assemblyman from Alameda County, which includes Oakland, was determined to end the Black Panthers' police patrols. To disarm them, he proposed a law that would prohibit the carrying of loaded weapons in any California city. Yes, that's right. Conservative white guys <laughs> voting for gun control. Note of the article, the fear inspired by black people with guns also led the United States Congress to consider new gun restrictions after the summer of 1969. In the summer of 69, riots struck Detroit and Newark. Police and National Guardsmen who tried to restore order were greeted with sniper fire. A 1968 federal report blamed the unrest at least partly on the easy availability of guns. And in the wake of the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy in 1968, Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, the first federal gun control law in 30 years. Months later, the Gun Control Act of 1968 amended it and enlarged it. Together, these laws greatly expanded the federal licensing system for gun dealers and clarified which people, including anyone previously convicted of a felony, the mentally ill, illegal drug users and minors, etc., were not allowed to own firearms. 
More controversially, the laws restricted importation of Saturday night specials, the cheap, small, poor-quality handguns named by the Detroit police for their association with urban crime. Because these inexpensive pistols were popular in minority communities, one critic said the new federal gun legislation was passed not to control guns, but to control blacks. Noted Adam Winkler in this piece that indisputably for much of American history, gun control measures, especially in the South, had long prohibited blacks, both slave and free, from owning guns. After losing the Civil War, southern states quickly adopted the Black Codes, which were laws designed to reestablish white supremacy by dictating what the freedmen could and couldn't do. One common provision barred blacks from possessing firearms. Anyway, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. I'd recommend that you check out the article. Apparently, how a lot of people feel about gun control depends a great deal on who it is that's possessing the guns. We also said at the top of the program, we'd talk a little bit about the fact that there are now 7 billion souls on Earth. Nice piece on this by D. Brian Burghardt in uh, the Sacramento News and Review. I thought the graph on page uh, 18 was pretty hair-raising. Showed how it took till 1804 for there to be 1 billion people on Earth. We managed to double that in 123 more years. By 1927, we were at 2 billion. Despite the calamities of World War I and, uh, and, and the worldwide flu epidemic, and despite the catastrophe of World War II, we hit 3 billion by 1960. Just 14 years later, we hit 4. That was 1974. 13 years after that, 1987, we hit 5. 1999, we hit 6 billion. And now, as of about Halloween Day 2011, we've hit 7 billion people on Earth. Which means that sometime during the next decade, there will be three times as many people on Earth as the year in which I was born, which I think is scary as hell. People like Paul Ehrlich predicted disaster back in the 1960s. We have not had great massive famines around the world, thanks in no small part to the Green Revolution, which has been, uh, to a large degree, helped along by our terrific availability of fossil fuels. But uh, the question is, how many folks can you stack on the lifeboat before it finally tips over? There's uh, not a hell of a lot of wilderness left to go pack uh, the extra population off to. We're running out of water in lots of places on Earth. Of course, energy is that perennial problem, not the least of which is global warming. But uh, no matter how you slice it, it appears we are cruising for a bruising. In fact, the thing that seems to have saved us is, uh, as The Economist magazine noted, the fact that agricultural productivity has boomed 350% since just 1970. But again, a lot of this has to do with fertilizers, which are created uh, in very energy-intensive situations, producing a lot of CO2 as a byproduct. And sadly, our use of fertilizers and the fact that they get run off of the, uh, the land and go into our streams and wind up out in the ocean are causing algal blooms and all kinds of eco-problems. And yet a lot of folks see us hitting 10 billion before things will level off. No one seems to be able to explain what it is that's going to make us level off. And sad to say, I think Paul Ehrlich may have been right back in the late 60s when he said, well, you can either practice better birth control or you can practice death control. And by the way, while driving around Chico last week, spotted a truly 
great bumper sticker. Said, I support the wars in West Asia and Eurasia. Back to the stoplight, I got out, ran over the guy and said, where'd you get the sticker? He directed me to an online site and was glad that I, too, had read 1984 and remembered the three nations at war with each other, or more correctly, coalitions, Oceania, East Asia, and Eurasia. And uh, I certainly hope it doesn't come down to that for how we're going to control the world population. A constant state of war. Huge, mighty expenditures on armaments. Of course, that's only the U.S. that's doing that. The rest of the world seems to have avoided that trap. When you go to the United Nations building and look around, you'll see that they have a big uh, mural demonstrating the world's arms expenditures. As we pointed out on this program before, it appears the U.S. outspends at least the next 16 nations in the world, and, and probably all of them. Something to think about next time you hit a pothole or worry about a bridge collapsing. I wonder why the levees aren't strengthened, or ask yourself why it is we can't seem to afford health care as we have in other advanced nations. Oh, the answer to all these questions, by the way, does appear to be that we're spending all the money on the military instead. And yeah, man, I'm just getting tired of hearing how, boy, you know, if we pull out of Iraq right now, boy, that would really help the Iranians. I I would say no. If we pull out of Iraq, it would really help the Americans. Also, did you notice in those articles about the end of uh, the Qaddafi regime, how many uh, articles there were about how Europe was probably going to be uh, uh, the entity that would benefit most from this? Seemed to be a bit of a post-war profiteering envy in those articles about how, boy, we're going to miss the chance to just rake in the coin by taking over Libya now that Muammar is gone. But I would say to people who are lamenting this fact, don't worry. Uh, grabbing oil fields doesn't necessarily seem to help us out that much. Witness the fact that the world's second largest proven oil fields are in Iraq. Of course, if you thought, as many of you, I think, did, that we went into Iraq to basically secure uh, better uh, sources for our oil, well, um, um, no, it appears we went in there to take the oil off the market. I mean, that's how it played out, isn't it? Because I'm pretty sure that over the last, uh, you know, eight years, our invasion of Iraq did not cause a significant reduction in oil prices. I mean, gas doesn't seem any cheaper now, does it? Anyway, let's move on. We're going to talk a little bit with Rick Anderson, I think, on next week's program, general manager of KZFR and Chico, about that event uh, last week. But I thought I'd say a few more words about it. It was my great pleasure to share the stage with Michael Perini and Will Durst. I guess I can say, and it and it's sort of true, that... I opened for Will Durst once. Really more of an introduction than it was a comedy bit, but I'm gratified by the fact that the laugh lines did appear to work. Because, folks, when you've been in front of a crowd and you deliver a line that you think should cause it to erupt in laughter and you're greeted with stony silence, it's a bad moment. What I admire most about uh, comics that uh, do this for a living, people like Mr. Durst, is that inevitably you will have that moment, no matter how well you're doing. Sooner or later, a joke's not going to work. Watching Durst, who was at the top of his game in Chico last week, uh, recover from the moments when things kind of go a little bit flat. That's, that's what I just I love about uh, observing a real pro in action. And I think by far my favorite part of the evening was the, the Q&A, after Michael Perini talked about some very controversial things and, and was, uh, I think, ticking off a few people in the audience. I do want to note, if you're going to make a case for Slobodan Milosevic and Muammar Gaddafi getting a raw deal from the West, you need to make sure that you, uh, you make your case well. I did note in my introduction that I don't always agree with Michael Parenti, but I do find him to be a very compelling thinker, and that sometimes I have changed my mind based on what he's had to say. 
And I would add that I don't think he's wrong when he talks about how organizations like the International Monetary Fund and World Bank were not too keen at uh, people like Milosevic and, and Qaddafi. That in no way justifies some of their excesses, but uh, again, he had a point. It's worth considering the full picture when we look at world affairs. The Q&A was fascinating in that you had a comedian and a social commentator taking questions from the field. And uh, what I liked best was the fact that Durst, the comedian, gave some serious answers, and Parenti, the social critic, threw back a few good one-liners. I want to thank everybody listening up in Chico who contributed to that event by paying their fee and showing up. I hope that a good time was had by all. I also hope that when we do some fundraising for KDVS, we can follow that model and, and have some events that are, that are live chats and live entertainment uh, in the way of a fundraiser. All right, we're, running, we're up against it on time. Just want to note uh, in closing, the reason, the reason I did not take part in the reading of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by various local figures in Sacramento was that nobody asked me. But I'll put it out there right now. When you get around to doing Huckleberry Finn, I'm available. And to those of you who claim that book is racist and should be banned, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're fools. For Mark Twain to have written that book in 1883 and made the two lead characters in the book, a poor kid with an alcoholic father and a runaway slave, while outlining their adventures as the two men escape down the Mississippi River, well, you just, you, just, you just haven't thought this one through. That book was a great leap forward for civil rights in America, and, uh, and I hope someone does have a reading of it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who promises me he will accompany me on my next field trip up to Chico. Isn't that right? Yeah. Our thanks to Will Durst, as always. It's a pleasure to bring him to you, dear listener. I look forward to doing that all through 2012. By the way, our 500th program of Radio Parallax will air in January. We're going to see if we can't have some sort of celebration for that, as we will in June, when I expect we will reach our 10th anniversary. That's it. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Tune in next week for more of the same. We hope to interview author Reese Paley about his book, The Answer, Why Only Inherently Safe Mini Nuclear Power Plants Can Save Our World. We're also pleased to uh, tell you that we're going to be speaking with Joanne Herring. Yes, she of Charlie Wilson's War, played by Julia Roberts' fame. Her uh, tell-all memoir, Diplomacy and Diamonds, My Wars from the Ballroom to the Battlefield, is going to be interesting. I I can tell you that. This is something I am positive of. I'm really looking forward to that interview. Anyway, see you next week. Yeah, I like to hear some funky tips and let them dance a funky tone. And I'll be buying everybody drinks all around. Oh, Blackwater, keep on rolling. Mississippi, won't you keep on shining?